coming up on Art Palace. And again, I'm not sure if we would feel comfortable with Scarlett Johansson, for instance, walking around with her handmaiden with someone's head in a basket. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is film critic T.T. Stern Enzi. So, of course, I did, I did bring you here today um, because the Oscars are coming up very quick. Is it next week? Uh, the two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, yes. two weeks from although, last night, actually. Although this means nothing because when I post this, <laughs> <laughs> so I probably shouldn't have even mentioned time. I just realized that. I was like, why am I talking about time? This is just, it's not like people are listening to this live. Like, right. Well, so it hasn't happened yet if, unless you're listening to it very late. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we need to say. Good. All right. Yes, they're on their way. So so I just wanted to kind of go through, have you seen all Best Picture nominees this year? I have seen all of the Best Picture nominees. Um, I mean, the great thing about doing what I do and the way I've set it up now is going, I, I go to Toronto every year, so that mm-hmm. really kind of opens opens the door for me in terms of not just seeing things, but also having the chance to sort of get in on that, on that early buzz. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as a matter of fact, this year, um, Manchester by the Sea was the very first film I saw out of the 32 or 34 films I saw in, at the Toronto Film Festival. And in my mind, it was that film and then everything else that I saw after that. <laughs> um, probably not fair to those other films, and it's really kind of weirdly not fair that that was the first film that I saw. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, that did it. Kind of set the stage for everything else. So would that? Do you think would that be your personal pick still? Of of like you get to choose, not like what you think will win, but what you would pick. Um, it is not. Hmm. Um, and it's funny because I did this exercise. I mentioned you know doing programming at Camp Ernst Middle School, and. I did an exercise with the kids a few weeks ago where we broke down what we had seen and we're trying to come up with our best or favorite films from mm-hmm. the past year. And we set up three different categories for it. So it was, you know, what you thought was the best film of the year and with explanations for why. What was your favorite? Mm-hmm. Again, with an explanation of why. And then that last idea, that last category was kind of a what do you think is popular or what do you expect? other people to like, or or in the case of an award show, what do you think will win? Mm -hmm. So yes, there are three very different categories now. And I look at Manchester by the sea as probably the best film that I saw. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is not my favorite film from last year. So this is an interesting idea and one that I think I've been able to sort of keep those two ideas going for a very long time in my head of like, well, this is what I like and this is what I think is good. And I think that's a really interesting idea of like essentially this idea of quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And what, where do those 
like boundaries come from and and why is that different from the things we enjoy and why <laughs> you know what i mean like isn't that an interesting thought like of, it is. Of, of like the idea of quality um and and almost like i think a lot of times when thinking about uh, the oscars especially i think we have the sort of like best picture type movie in our mm-hmm. head too so there's almost like the thing that sort of achieves all of those notes that are typically hit by this right. movie. So it's it's like, again, it's not about like whether you enjoyed the experience the most or, but more like, well, it fits into these particular, like it's hitting these categories and it's hitting these different areas. Right. And this year in particular for me was one of those years where, again, based on those three categories, I have three different films. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Manchester by the Sea is in my mind sort of the best film. And it's funny that you mentioned ticking off all of those boxes because that's, that's exactly why I think Manchester is probably the best film. Mm-hmm. It has the strongest sense of direction that mm-hmm. you get from Lonergan. And also has a really great screenplay that kind of allows the you feel that there's this room for all of those actors to kind of grow and become these these people and live in those situations and yet you also know that it was scripted probably down to you know the very last word Hmm. and you knew they were following that but it still works it still felt natural and you went with it you know, it looks great. I ended up interviewing the the woman who did the score. So again, all again, it's ticking off all those boxes. You're right. Um, my favorite film was Moonlight, which mm-hmm. was actually for me. Once I saw Moonlight, I guess two days into the festival, I started to flip back and forth between Moonlight and Manchester as wow, these are the two films that I'm going to really walk away from the festival that are going to stay with me. And it is not to say that. Moonlight and Barry Jenkins' work doesn't tick off the same kinds of boxes. Mm-hmm. There is just this sense in a from a very traditional kind of way that we look at film and storytelling and all of that. It feels that Manchester hits those those notes in a sharper way mm-hmm. and a more traditional kind of way. I still appreciate and really love and identify with what Jenkins did though in Moonlight and it's, and it works for me on a, on a gut level Mm -hmm. more, which is again, why it's my personal favorite. Mm -hmm. And then you have La La Land, which is the film that's going to win. And I saw, (laughs) I saw that everyone is so resigned to that fact. You think it's a definite at this point? I do think it's a definite at this point. I mean, I kind of assumed it would too, but it is just like funny that everyone's sort of like, I feel like now almost, and maybe I'm saying everyone, it's like, I don't know everyone, but like, I'm getting a lot of like, this sort of like resigned, like eye rolling, like, oh, La La Land is going to win. Yeah. And I feel that way because again, I, I saw it there. I saw it in Toronto as well Mm -hmm. and liked it a lot. I and I'm not necessarily a fan of musicals, so it it had to overcome some real hurdles for, to really pull me in. But it did. It worked for me. It pulled me in, but it didn't check off. There's one major box that for me it didn't check off, and it's just the idea that there is not this substantial kind of sense of that story being meaningful. <laughs> I mean, it is. 
it is not to slight the story at all, but it's a traditional kind of, okay, you've got a couple who, you know, they're artistic, they're struggling, trying to find their way in the world. But that doesn't really translate in terms of a, a meaningful existential kind of crisis of yeah. sorts. And it, it, it doesn't do that for me. Yeah. No, and, totally it, and it doesn't really do that for anyone. And I, I'm, at least I don't think. Yeah, no, I, 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 I saw it too. And I'm, I kind of feel the same way you do. And it's like, that was enjoyable. Like it was fine. Yeah. Like I liked it. I would never, I, I didn't think it was bad, but I also just, yeah, I think that's why there's a lot of eye rolling about it is because it's like the thing everyone expects to win. Yes. And, but it seems like, like, I don't know, I would have given it probably like a B. Like, it was like it, it's B work. It's not like a, it's not an right. A plus film. So you're just kind of like, eh, for okay. me coming out of the festival, it was not one of my top five films, but it was, it was sort of in that, it was at the top of the second tier. Yeah. But I, and again, here's where the resignation is kind of coming in. I'm, I'm already looking at the idea that yes, it's going to win best picture and I'm going to be annoyed. Um, <laughs> But I have started to acknowledge the idea that, okay, Damien Chazelle is the director, did an amazing job putting that together. Mm-hmm. Let's let's get over the fact that the story doesn't quite work for me in the way that it should. Everything else comes together, and there's a lot of technical stuff that goes into creating a world where people speak and express themselves through music. Mm-hmm. And he put it all together and it co- and it holds together well on all of those technical aspects so when he wins director i am not going to be as annoyed <laughs> as when he wins best picture but i'm really going to be annoyed when it wins best picture yeah yeah i can see that i think it's probably also it, it kind of feeds into the general criticism of the oscars is like a sort of self-congratulatory act too so so the fact that they're going to pick this movie that's all about hollywood and like this, you know, it just even adds to the sort right. of says the back padding Although, nature of it. This year in particular, and again, I haven't really, I don't, I try not to focus on the box office as much, mm-hmm. but I will admit that I feel like audiences in general will feel a little better about La La Land winning because people actually went to see it. Yeah, you know, there are more people, and we we see the figures. More people saw. La La Land than have seen Manchester or Moonlight combined. Right. You know, Hidden Figures isn't going to win either, but more people are going, more people have seen mm-hmm. Hidden Figures than than those two films. And, and again, that means that I guess this experiment that the Academy tried to come up with in terms of expanding that pool of pictures that could be considered for, for, for the top honor, it's kind of working for them in a way. Yeah. Because they are actually capturing films that people are going to see and that people can relate to which in some ways makes my job as a critic a little easier because I'm not necessarily just sitting on my high horse talking about these esoteric films that no one goes to see. Yeah. That that conversation has opened up and, you know, yeah, people are, yeah, they're talking about La La Land. They're talking about hidden figures. You know, they're talking about Arrival, even though Arrival didn't do quite as well as everyone would have hoped, but still more people went to see Arrival Mm -hmm. than, than Moonlight or Manchester. Oh, okay. And that film is out there now in the, in the conversation. So that does help. Um, <clears throat> still kind of leaves me longing, though, for this idea that there's got to be a way for me as a critic to have a different conversation with 
either readers of City Beat and Dayton City Paper or even the viewers who catch me on Friday mornings <clears throat> on Fox 19. There's, I mean, they, you know, they're coming, they're hearing about film, they're hearing a different take on it, but I, I feel like there's still got to be a better way to, to really get them involved in that conversation a mm-hmm. bit more so that, you know, it doesn't feel like they are so divorced from this idea of, of film culture and what it can mean, because, I mean, as we kind of started out, that's not really the case. People are not as divorced from it as they think. No. They're seeing stuff. They are, again, if they even if they aren't seeing the films in theaters, they're ha- they have access to them through streaming services now. They're watching original content on those streaming services, which, again, is an opportunity for them to start making comparisons with the TV shows that they like that might have more cinematic elements to them that they can then compare to the films that they see and, again, hopefully lead to us being more engaged and more informed and more aware critically and culturally about what's going on. So, yeah, I'm, I, I feel like I, there's still a divide there that I haven't quite figured out how, how to overcome. And, I mean, I think the reality is now I'm – Maybe I'm thinking about it in the wrong way because there aren't that many critics, especially paid critics, left hmm. anyway. So, you know, people are getting their opinions about films from other sources. And maybe maybe that conversation is already broken down in ways that I'm just not as comfortable or aware of. Yeah. Yeah, it's I I think definitely and some people are very leery of of film critics too. Like some people definitely, you kind of said the sort of idea of a high horse, you know, there's definitely people who have that sort of like almost the, well, if they like it, then I almost probably won't like it. Mm -hmm. I think there's still that attitude out there too. Yeah. I think people completely miss. And that's one of the things that has actually helped me with doing the reviews on Fox 19. People get to see me now on Mm -hmm. Friday mornings talking about, you know, John Wick 2 and Fifty Shades Darker, just as two films that I had to talk about last week. How bad is Fifty Shades Darker? I haven't seen it. I, I sat through the first one. It's, the, mo- the most boring movie about sex I've ever watched. No, it's not. This is the most boring film I've ever I tweeted about that, and I said it on TV last week, and someone like hit me up on Twitter and they're like, wow, just tell it like it is. And then like the idea that this is supposed to be a, a, a sexual fantasy and there's, it's, it's, it's so dull. It's this, it's the fantasy of like a five-year-old. <laughs> it really, I mean, and I'm, that is probably the worst thing that I could have ever said, <laughs> but it's true. There's nothing interesting or titillating yeah. about it at all. No. Like why, how does, and again, I, you walk into it and you're going to get exactly what it's it's like laying out for you. There yeah. there's there's no surprise, there's nothing interesting about it. You know, Jamie Dornan is like a walking set of abs. And <laughs> and it's like that's just there's nothing attractive about any of that. No. There's nothing risky or edgy about well that's like the funniest any of them yeah the whole idea of this like oh it's like supposed to be this like edgy dark like bondage movie and then you're like this is the safest thing i've ever watched it is so safe it totally is and again it it, this the new film 
it shoots itself in the foot by including Kim Basinger as the woman who supposedly introduces Christian Grey to his kinky lifestyle. And in my mind, every time I look at her, I'm thinking of nine and a half weeks. And I'm like, you know what? Mickey Rourke wasn't necessarily a great looking dude back in the day. But he exuded that kind of weird sexual kind of energy that you were just like, okay, that dude is creepy. <laughs> and yeah, now that's the kind of, that's what you're going for. Right. You know, and the scene, and it's funny because I'm sitting here now and it's playing in my head. I saw Nine and a Half Weeks when I was in high school. And I remember the scene where he, where Mickey Rourke and Kim Basinger are like in front of the refrigerator. And he blindfolds her and he's feeding her and that is still one of the strongest sensual kinds of images i think i've ever seen on film and there's nothing close to that in any of these 50 shades movies i just i mean the first one i just remember is so just sloppily written too like the i remember there was a scene where his mother shows up and at the end of it i said well that's a scene that tells us he has a mother (laughs) Like, literally nothing, no other information was given during this scene other than, well, he has a mom, which we probably could have all guessed. But, like, she literally comes in, says, hi, I'm, like, his mom, nothing else, and, like, walks out of the room. Like, and you're like, oh. Yeah, but what really, I mean, I think the bottom line with it is, what do you expect from a film that's based on a book that's based on Twilight fan Fan fiction? That's what you're going to get. Actually, like... That sounds like could be great. Like I, I would be totally down with something. So like if it was, if it was actually probably the problem was that it wasn't allowed to be fan fiction. Like actually, if you just let it be kind of this weird thing, like I would actually rather sit through like that version because actually that's what Twilight was missing. I mean, Twilight's so weirdly chased. Right. So like that actually sounds more interesting, certainly than Twilight. <laughs> it it needs to be, you know, and again, I think the problem with a lot of films today that are going for these kind of lifestyle kinds of angles with, you know, again, this is like a high end kind of lifestyle fantasy. They, sh- they forget that you can be cheap and fun with that stuff. Yeah. And you've got to be playful with it. And there's no sense of play. It's all sterile. It's all really bland. And again, that's not that's not a fantasy. Well, I just, you know, to, to to totally flip and like, but when you were just talking about something that's basically like fan fiction, I just saw the Lego Batman movie. Mm, yes. And that is essentially like a fan fiction story. Like it could be like where you have like, yeah. it's all about like just taking all of this weird like stories about Batman from like every source that's ever existed, putting it through a crazy like blender and coming up with this insane story. Like it. It, that it, kind of is it ends insane and you're right it has that that great fan fiction element but the really cool thing about that is in taking all of those different pieces it unifies them in in this yeah. really fun way yeah and that's yeah that's what you that's what you want yeah like it's a super fun thing to sit through yeah. like i mean i i definitely like the i like the original lego movie more than i like lego batman movie just because I think it was so surprising to me still. Like I, I did not expect it to be as good as it was. And, and the way it mixed, I think it also, um, you know, it starts out kind of in one universe and then starts to mix in all these kind of pop culture things Mm -hmm. that are 
you start to realize like, oh, this is like how a child plays. Like right. this is, and that becomes a part of the movie eventually. But so the way it kind of deals that out, this, this kind of is already starting from that point of, we all know that like, this is kind of the world we exist in, in these Lego movies now is that like, yeah, they can kind of borrow from everything. And that's, right. although it still is funny and unexpected when it happens in certain ways, but yeah, I just I love what it does, though, because it also sets up this idea that that's the first time. And I think it does it in a better way than Deadpool pool did. Even mm-hmm. it's it's spoofing that whole superhero comic book genre that we've got out there. It's it's offering up the ways that we look at these characters, but it's also kind of saying, I mean, come on, really? Are we, you you know, we can't take this seriously, right? It doesn't have to be this dark and brooding and and portentous. It's like, yeah, there's some fun in there. Yeah. And again, it's the fun, like I said, that was missing from 50 shades. You have to have, you have to wallow in the absurdity of that stuff. Yeah. You have to embrace it. And we are not, we're not really there. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Like, I would rather certainly watch Lego Batman any day over Batman versus Superman. Right. I mean, that, right. That, a movie I, I literally remember almost nothing about. <laughs> like, I, And it's, it's sad for me. I agree with you. And I have been forcing myself to watch it whenever I land on it on cable. Yeah. Just because I'm kind of like, okay, well, there's, there, there had to be something there. Right. And every time I do, I spend like, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and I'm just kind of like, I know the story. I know I, I, I haven't forgotten it, even though as much as I would like to have forgotten it. It's not gone, but it's just there's just nothing there. I, I every time somebody mentions something about that movie, I'll be like, oh, yeah, that happens. Like, I really don't right. remember it. Like I the other day I was talking to somebody and I remembered like, oh, yeah, Doomsday's in that movie. Like, <laughs> I totally <laughs> forgot that. Like, that's like a big part of the plot in the end. But like. It's a spoiler alert, I guess, if you have not. I mean, but it's too late now. But I, I, I feel like, like, what? Like, how did I not? And the reason I forgot it is because it's irrelevant. Yes. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it didn't It didn't matter to the plot. It could have been It could have been anything. It could have been anyone. It, could, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't know what it is about that kind of, you're, like, you're hitting it right on the head, the sort of broody, like, everything has to be so dark. It's clear Zack Snyder hates Superman, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, he just does not like him as a character. Like It really just feels like we have reached, like I said, we've reached this stage where, again, with, you know, the comic book genre and, again, the Fifty Shades stuff, everything, again, it's it's deep and dark. And no, it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. You know, and, and I would have to say, as much as I enjoyed, you know, the Lego Batman movie, there's something to be said for it. John Wick chapter two, because it's an incredibly violent film, but there's fun in there. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't chop it up so much. It like actually like the camera steps back and allows you to see all of the stuff that's happening. So you would, you start to appreciate, for instance, that Keanu Reeves in, in his fifties is still a really weirdly athletic, <laughs> graceful guy in a way. Yeah. Um, so you're getting all of that action and everything that's going on, but again, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's the end of the world. You're on, the only end of the world part of it is just the fact that he's still still not a great actor. <laughs> but if you get over that, you can just have fun watching the absurdity of the violence, and it actually tells a great story. It sets up and delves into that world a little deeper, and you know, spoiler alert, whatever you want to say, 
it sets up a third film, which even with the idea of setting up the third film, it's still you, you sit there and you're kind of like, well, yeah, well, that next one's going to be really fun. Yeah. And that's what movies are supposed to movies like that. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be fun. They're supposed to let you know that you can still have fun mm -hmm. in these worlds and you can enjoy them. And that there's the possibility that there's something else out there that you haven't imagined that someone else has that's still going to be really cool and interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you think anyone so going back to Oscars real fast, did you was there anything you felt was snubbed this year or things you had hoped would get nominated <clears throat> that didn't? Not particularly. I was uh, I was impressed with the idea, for instance, that you had a film like Hell or High Water that came out earlier in the year that didn't get forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've we spent the last couple of years dealing with the the Oscar so white issues. And, you know, in terms of at least the black and white dynamic, we've gotten over that to a certain extent for this year. Um, Although that's that's also kind of a criticism about La La Land, of course, is that, sure. that is kind of feels mostly a, a very white movie. And, yes. and that like at least I mean, I guess it's when you have really a movie that focuses so closely on two characters. Well, yeah, but, and it has its own issues, because, again, you've got the Gosling character who is trying to save jazz. <laughs> Exactly. And John Legend is the, the guy who's killing jazz. Killing jazz, right? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, you have some issues there. But, again, it's funny because I, I, I didn't want to gloss over that idea. But I think what what the political climate right now is kind of setting up for me in terms of looking at all of that is the idea that it is it is time for us to recognize. And, again, I'm saying this as a, as a black critic that, you know, our concerns and issues in, in the U.S. Are, are larger than black and white issues. Yeah. You know, that we were lucky that this year there were black filmmakers who got their stories made and told great stories. We were lucky that there were white filmmakers who were willing to embrace black stories as part of the American story and were able to tell great stories as mm -hmm. well. What needs to happen, though, is we need to look at, you know, the larger fabric of of the american society and and make sure that we're telling everyone stories mm -hmm. you know i i'm not saying that okay this is it we don't need to tell any more black stories but i'm saying <laughs> while we're telling black stories we need to tell stories of immigrants and you know asian the asian communities i mean there's again there's this richer fabric that is just not being addressed at all yeah you know we're still living in worlds where largely People go to the movies and they they are looking for themselves. But if you're again one of those populations of color or you know um, another marginalized community, you're still not seeing yourself. And as a black critic, that's that's still the thing that drives me every time I go into the movies. Yeah, I I started as a kid going in the movies and I saw everything. I probably saw as much when I was 15 as I see now, and. You know, there was this wide range of films and I was always going in looking for where I was in those stories. And ultimately, I I had to latch on to people that didn't look like me yeah. just to feel like I was part of those worlds. So imagine everyone else doing the same thing, which means that that's and it's not just incumbent upon 
those minority communities to sort of figure that out for themselves. Just like it's in from a larger cultural and political standpoint, it is not up to not just up to those people to speak out for themselves in terms of dealing with political issues. I mean, at some point you have to have voices on the other side that are willing to step up and say, you know what? Yeah, there's something wrong here. Let's figure out a way to address that. Yeah. And that takes everyone coming together. And the Academy made some strides sort of under duress mm-hmm. to try to adjust, try to figure that out. I just feel like now we should be making those strides without having the gun to our heads all the time. <laughs> it would be nice. Yeah. That sort of sense of like looking for yourself in movies, you know, I, I thought it was interesting the way, you know, we're talking about how like it's getting better, like it's getting better. There, there's something, but like, maybe we're not all the way there yet. And, uh, yeah. you know, obviously there are plenty of, of great movies that do this, but, I just remember watching a really bad movie, um, <laughs> which are, let's be honest, the most fun ones to talk about, right? Sure. It's sure. more fun to talk about bad movies. You see, I mean, I, I see 300 movies a year and I see more bad movies than I see good Absolutely. movies. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, they're not fun to watch, but they're fun to, I feel like, to pick apart. Sure. To, because it's like more fun to be like, that's why the, was this so bad? That's the job. But, uh, what was the Independence Day sequel called? I can't even remember. It's ridiculous oh, yeah. subtitle. Whatever it was. We'll call it Independence Day 2, even though that is most definitely not what it was called. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think it's funny that neither of us can remember that right now. Right? It, it had, like, probably, like, I'm sure it was something like Resurgence or... Yeah, something. Resurgence. Was, I feel like that that's another that, title that's, like, thrown out there after the knows? colon for yeah. a lot of films. Yeah. They actually... Uh, they, art museums uh, do that a lot, too. We can't name anything without a colon. So, like, we have to have blank, 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 colon, and then what it really is. So, actually, movies do it the other way, because usually they have, like, a very straightforward first title. Right. And then the last part is the, like, sort of esoteric part uh, like resurgence or something whereas we would do it exactly opposite we would call it resurgence colon independence day two and that would be the music that would be the museum uh exhibition title version wow of it. <laughs> but anyway yes. oh, so anyway resur- uh, independence whatever it's called i i was thinking like i watched that entire movie and then at the very end was like oh these two characters are gay like <laughs> Like, they retro kind of right. fitted one of the characters as gay. And right. like, as a gay person, like, I'm pretty good at picking up on, like, coded stuff in movies. Like, look, I've sat through, like, both Jeepers Creepers specifically because of the weird homoerotic content mm-hmm. in them. And I think, like, you know, I can totally pick up on, like, that, like... I think Fantastic Beasts was like a super gay movie. Like I, there is so much like okay. things yes. going on in that, like that is like very weird coded stuff happening. Like, so I feel like I am good at picking up on these things and I had no idea that was, those two men were supposed to be a couple. Like it was so weirdly like hidden and of course it has a gay director. Right. And actually, I almost think that is like, it's almost like he's, he's too good at hiding and like, which is sort of that, you know, the gay specialty is hiding. Um, so, so it's like a history of being hidden and right. a history of hiding essentially. So it's just really weird that impulse to kind of bury it a little bit until the last minute. And then, 
I, I just was like, oh, wait, they were a couple. Like, it, mm-hmm. I, nothing was telegraphed to me. I mean, even, like, the, the last Star Trek movie did a better job of, like, sort of right. giving me, like, a gay character <laughs> mm-hmm. and showing me, like, okay, this, you know, whatever. It's kind of irrelevant to the plot, but, like, here he is. Like, so, I, I don't know. Yeah, you know, and, and like I said, I think that's that's the question that I feel like politically we are we are facing these realities more in terms of having a president and now an administration that is going to be so heavy handed in the way that they address these issues. It's going to force the rest of us to kind of come together. And we're seeing that. And it's weird that this has gone completely political in terms of the conversation. <laughs> but, you know, there is this sense now that different groups are realizing that there is an opportunity to think beyond their own issues for a moment and see that they're, that we are all connected mm-hmm. in the ways that, again, you have an administration that's going that would probably be very happy to pick us apart one by one and deal mm-hmm. with us and kind of get us out of the way. But we're realizing, no, we're not going to let that happen. And I think we're doing that politically, but we also need to do that in terms of this cultural issue as well. Yeah. If if more people got together, you know, and you're seeing it in some ways, some of the intersectionality, you've got people like Ava DuVernay, who with hers, the Queen series going out and making sure that she hired female directors. You know, she made a conscious decision to do that. So, okay. So there's, there's an opportunity as a black woman, but who's also saying, yes, I want to make sure that women are involved in these projects. You know, there's a chance somewhere down the line where, yes, there will be in, you know, an Asian American connection with that too. And you'll see, okay, well, yeah, if we're going to, if we're going to cover ourselves, we're going to make sure we, we bring another group along too. And mm-hmm. we understand and we relate to the idea that our worlds really are probably more interconnected than we, then we would, well, then society would want us to think in the first place. I was uh, watching, so last night was the Grammys, and did you watch? No, I did not. So um, there was this country performance, and I was listening to it, and I just was thinking, this is an R&B song. Mm-hmm. Like, this th- this is genre. That the, is that the one where they had the Dap Kings? Uh, or it was the performance no, with the Dap Kings? About? I will not remember her name except it starts with an M. Um, <laughs> I'm really sorry. That's all right. That was country, just something that I read lady about. that I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking this was like, you know, this is just like an R&B song. It was just really, or I mean, just the production. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, just the instruments being used were not the traditional country music set, essentially. Right. And then right as I think that, Alicia Keys busts out. And is like singing with her. And I was like, yes, thank you. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is the same stuff. Like, you're doing the same thing. Like, these songs like that you have written are essentially identical. And we have these divisions that are just 100% race-based. Like, right. it's like insane. Like, right. I mean, even the categories, and I'm, I feel like really torn about this because on like one hand, I feel like, like, but Beyonce winning best urban contemporary like Mm -hmm. what is that even mean like is that a type of music like i've never heard something and i'm like oh this is urban contemporary like it just doesn't make any sense to me right and so i feel i'm like torn because on one hand i'm like this is insane this is this is a category that exists solely based on race but with like coded language to try to mask that but very poorly it's not even like obviously like i feel like rap is a 
type of music. Like it is a genre. Like there is a point where I'm like, that is a person who is rapping. And this is a time when somebody is not rapping. Right. <laughs> like that I can go for, but like urban contemporary, yeah. what is that? But it, you know, then at the same time I think, well, well, she got some recognition for lemonade because of that category. And I kind of wonder if, if that category did not exist, would, well, she didn't win, you know, pop single pop album no she, yeah and that's what i'm i'm sort of I, I i can go back and forth on this of being like well you know at a certain point if you get rid of all the categories it's a very short show which that also could have been good <laughs> <laughs> like it could have shaved off at least a solid half hour there so right that would have been i would have been okay with that part but yeah it's like you, i get like we got to give out some awards like we got to have out more than one you know yeah but i i also kind of wonder like would if without that category, would they kind of give it to Beyonce for in, instead of Adele um, for album of the year? Or would it be like, absolutely not like it's still going to Adele? Like, I don't I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know. And I, I think I have spent such a long time again. The music portion of this is always intriguing to me because I think musicians are a, are in a better position to make different choices. Mm hmm than filmmakers are to a certain extent because in film you have so many people involved and it's such a complicated mix and process to try to figure out and put it all together but in my mind I think it's fascinating that for instance back in the late 60s and early 70s you had an artist like Al Green who and I have all of those early Al Green I've got them on CD. My mother has them still on an album. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how I listened to them as a kid growing up. But I would listen to those Al Green albums and you would have him covering Willie Nelson and the Bee Gees and Chris Christopherson and The Doors. And the thing was, by the time you heard the song, it was just an Al Green song. Yeah. So there wasn't a, it wasn't, it wasn't Al Green doing country. It wasn't Al Green doing rock. It was just Al Green doing mm -hmm. Al Green. So that, but that was a choice that he made and he was such a distinct performer that that's how it came out. And maybe if we had those kinds of distinct performers or at least performers who were willing to try to take some risks mm -hmm. like that, you know, and again, I, and I don't want to, dismiss I, I i love the idea of lemonade and I, mm -hmm. not just the idea of it the execution is great that's mm -hmm. that's a great album but in my mind before she did that i used to always think about the idea of beyonce and say well gosh Beyonce would be really cool if she did some other stuff <laughs> you know the, the beyonce r&b stuff that we get from her that's that's in her wheelhouse but i would like to see her do like an everything but the girl song or you know, just go somewhere completely different, which she kind of did with Lemonade. Yeah. But that's, like I said, that's what I'm looking for. Why, you know, let her do something different. Let, you know, John Legend, like, get out of his mode and do something different. Or again, you know, you go across the board. Let a country artist look at, you know, I don't know what, I, I can't think of a song just off the top of my head, but why can't a country artist do James Blake? Mm-hmm. You know, like really just mix it up like, OK, there there's another there's a great song over there. I want to take a I want to take a shot at that song. Yeah. Well, that's why. And, and that's actually kind of where, where we all started was I love seeing those collaborations that were happening from kind of unlikely places last night, like Alicia Keys on a country song. Right. Or, or I can't remember which show it was, but um, 
the Dixie Chicks did uh, daddy lessons with Beyonce mm-hmm. for one of those, which is just like a straight up country song again that right. from Lemonade. And and so I, I feel like those are really helpful things to sort of like draw these parallels for people like, look, like this is not so separated as you seem to think it is. Because right. it just it and, you know, I definitely I'm a, I feel like I actually need to be like, I need to make a more concerted effort to listen to like country music now. <laughs> like, I feel like I need to like sort of get onto that like side of things that I just don't have any connection with in general. Like I couldn't come up with her name, you know? Right. So. Well, I think in the same way though, and again, it taking it back to film, you have, you have film worlds that are out there that, you know, for instance, every once in a while, and we tend to do it in a really negative way. We, we call people out for not presenting diverse worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, Woody Allen has spent years and years getting a lot of grief because he does he didn't include black characters in his stories. And then he he started off and, you know, he threw a black prostitute in for I think the first film that came up and it was kinda like, dude, that's not what we were talking about. <laughs> <clears throat> and then he and then he again he he made another stab and he got a little better at it. Yeah. So in the same way, you know, you could you could argue that, you know, for a long time, Tyler Perry films for all black worlds. And then he started including white characters in it. And you, I'm sure if, you know, from the other side, you go ahead and go, well, that's not really what we wanted to be. We didn't want to be that guy in your world either. <laughs> so, okay. You, you learn, you, 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 you take these chances, you take the opportunity, you, you, you bring other people into those worlds. And, but that has to, that has to start and continue on, on an ongoing basis. And if we do that, if we're able and willing to look at and find character actors across that spectrum that you can put in the roles, that gives us all a chance to see and appreciate the fact that there is a much more diverse world out there. Maybe it will remind us of the fact that we live in more diverse worlds anyway. Because mm-hmm. I think that's the problem. Again, I talk about that, that idea of looking for reflections when I go to the movies. I never see a world on film that looks like the world I live in. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't happen. So I wonder if everyone else feels the same way. If you're if you're a straight white male looking at the movies that you see, you know, is your world as monochromatic as the world you're seeing on screen? Maybe it is. But I would like to hope that maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. But you've never really thought about it before. So once someone points it out to you, you start looking around at your friends and your coworkers and the people in your life. Then you're going to say, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I that's that's true. That that world doesn't look like the world I live in. Why not? And what can I do to help make sure that that happens? Which really, ultimately, all of this gets back to what we what we decide to invest in our time, our money. And what we watch. If we're going to try to make a change, you know, the first step is going to be to say, well, yeah, let me let me go see the Hidden Figures film. Let me go see some of these films that, again, don't look like my world necessarily. But then maybe, yeah, let's in Hidden Figures, there is a much more diverse perspective to a certain extent in there. You know, maybe that opens a few eyes. Maybe that says, okay, yeah, because so many people have gone to see that and it's done so well at the box office and it will probably continue to do well when they release it overseas. 
maybe Hollywood will look at that and say, well, yeah, you know what? We don't have to be afraid of, of, you know, the, the black film world mm-hmm. not exporting well or excluding mainstream audiences. You know, you have to, again, you make those kinds of choices with, with your dollars and with your time that hopefully that makes a change. And again, that's the kind of change that you can make the thing you're doing without it having to be under the gun. Yeah. Well, I thought if you have a few minutes, we could still go look at some art in the galleries real fast. Let's do it. All right. So I wanted to come look at a piece that I was thinking about could be a movie and we could talk about it as a how you would maybe if you were watching what you would want to see from the movie version of this painting. Okay. So um, we're looking at a painting by Botticelli, who's a famous dude, most famous for his uh, that old Birth of Venus <laughs> seashell right. painting. Yes, that's true. I was about to say otherwise. You realize I'm a film critic. I know nothing. You don't know about anything it. about art, but you know that painting, right? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay, yes. so you know it's like one of those things that like is in pop culture. So right. people like generally know that at least that painting. Um, and this is a painting called Judith and Holofernes. Now. Do you know the story of Judith and Holofernes? I do not. Okay. So it is a apocryphal biblical tale. Okay. So that's why, you know, they didn't teach in Sunday school. Mm. <laughs> that's why it was, it was like, <laughs> we avoid this one. But it's a, it's a good story. And I was looking, actually, because I thought it's never been made into a movie, and I was surprised by that. But then I looked, and actually, there has been, like, two movies, both Italian. Okay. One in, like, 1929 that's silent, and then right. another one in the 50s that... Uh, had like two was both called I think Judith and Holofernes and Head of a Tyrant, which I think Ooh, is a great title. I know I like that. I like Head, head of, a, of a, tyrant. a Tyrant. I love Head of a Tyrant too. Um, so Judith is a Jewish woman, which I think is all her name actually means. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, your name is who it's, you who and what you are. It's kind of like Belle in Beauty and the Beast, right? right. So Judith. Um, and her village is under attack uh, by the Assyrians. And she um, has a plan, which is she goes uh, to the Assyrian army and pretends to be betraying her village. And she demands to see the head of the army, uh, Holofernes, and she seduces him Mm -hmm. and... And she gets him very drunk on wine. And then when he's uh, really tipsy, she beheads him. Good for her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's the, I have to say already, this is completely going against what the image that I have in my head for the movie, just based on the painting itself. Oh, okay. So it's already different. Yeah, than, this yeah, is okay. great. Okay. So, yeah. So then, I mean, I gave you the very quick, I gave you the elevator pitch. So if you're, sure. you're like the studio exec and I'm like the writer from 2000 years ago, <laughs> I was trying to pitch this story <laughs> to you. Like, hey, okay, listen and, to this. And, and what, what kind there of are points, more details. What kind of points am I going to get for this, you know, if, if we actually produce it? That's what... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so basically she beheads him. She takes the head back to her village. Everyone's excited, and the Assyrian army flees. So, All you right. know. So that's the quick version. We can pad this out, though. I mean, I think we can get a solid 90 minutes out of this. 
Totally. I think like, look, I feel like I've sat through a lot of two and a half hour movies recently that had less content. Sure. Than that. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. I mean, again, you've got to give a little backstory on her. You oh, set absolutely. Up this, yeah. You set up the scenario between the, the, the village and the armies. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. There's, there, there are ways to work with that. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah. You have a scene where she's like a little girl and like you set up like, oh, ooh, 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 okay. Holofernes does something very nasty to her family. Ooh. Yes. So, like, that's the beginning of the movie right. is we set up, like, that uh, vengeance potentially with a beheading so right. that, like, that feels extra just. Right. Or he, like, tears the head off of her teddy bear or something. Well, and see, the thing I have, I'm thinking about here, especially looking at the painting, my, my first question would be, are we doing this live action or animated? Because, oddly enough, the painting reminds me, it, it takes me in sort of that animated kind of realm which, in essence, when you started laying out the story, you could play that as almost like, a, I hate to say this, but it's kind of a Disney princess kind of story. Except for the bad. But right. Except for, <laughs> except for the entire point of the story. Right. Yeah. Except for. I mean, if you, if you kind of soften that beheading thing, you, you might have a, you might have a so Disney story. There. What would happen instead if the beheading in, in Disney's Judith and Olafrones? Ah, gosh. What, what, yeah. what ends up happening? What happened? I mean, a lot of Disney villains do have sort of nasty deaths that just are kind of off screen right. a little and, bit. And it would have to be off screen, but you could not really go with the idea of someone losing their head, even off screen. Do they show the guy in Tarzan getting hung, like hanged? Sorry. Uh, Pictures are hung. They do not. They, you, it's implied. Right. But and again, in most of these cases, it's implied. So, yes, you, you would not see that. Yeah, but I don't think they can give Disney princess. I mean, it would be a mate. Well, never mind. I was about to say they can't give Disney princesses a sword, but Mulan has, definitely has a sword. Yeah, yeah. So she's already a, a, a warrior. I mean, I'm just again, I'm looking at the details of of the face here. And again, there is something very, very much in line with that princess kind of feel. Although the interesting thing for me with the painting, as you kind of take it all in, there are really interesting details that feel more realistic in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like, again, I'm looking down at like the, you know, the clothing and even like the feet that there's something again, that feels more like a fully realized mm-hmm. physical form, which again, would, would that's why, like I said, if you're, if you're going to move away from the animation into a more live action kind of sense, there, there's something about the details of this woman. Yeah, I think I think it. the beheading is going to rule out animation. I think <laughs> yeah. we're going to have to go live action on this one. Um, and so now in the painting, we have, I guess, three characters. Well, we have we do have the Assyrian army. I think kind of like ro- riding right. off in the background. But then we have Judith uh, with her sword, mm-hmm. um, and we have her handmaid. Right. And then we have just the head of Holofernes. <laughs> um and so my question now, um her her maid her handmaiden is very uh you know a a big part of the story. She's with her the whole time, helps mm-hmm. her through this. Um so I'm just kind of wondering casting decisions. Do you have any ideas who would we cast in these roles? Who do you think would make a good Judith? Um mm. 
who would make a good handmaiden, who would make a good Holofernes. Right. Well, you know, part of the problem that I'm having as I'm thinking this through, again, it, it still goes back to the whole idea of the beheading. And I almost feel like for you, you couldn't do a Hollywood film. Which, you just think the beheading would just be out of the question. Yeah, it's just too, too I really much. Do. I, I really do. And especially the idea, again, from the painting itself, you see, you know, the, the handmaiden has a basket on her head <laughs> with the head in it. Mm -hmm. And and you need to see that. I mean, that's that's the really the crux of the painting, which means that if you're going to portray this on screen, you'd have to see this image on screen. It, and, and almost the risk probably that they wouldn't want to take is that it makes Judith potentially way less sympathetic. Right. I mean, it makes her... Like it's so grisly. It makes her less sympathetic. And, and I say that because we live in a world where, again, I've already talked about seeing John Wick Chapter 2. The idea of seeing Keanu Reeves shoot hundreds of men in the head as he's going off on his mm -hmm. wicked, wild crusade, we're fine with that. But we don't want to see women do that. And again, I'm not sure if we would feel comfortable with Scarlett Johansson, for instance, walking around with her handmaiden with someone's head in a basket. Mm. Yeah. Or I don't know. Like I'm, I'm kind of thinking how they could get away with it. Like if, like what if we see it happens in a tent, which gives us the very good option of going with a silhouette beheading scene so you could not see that and then we even already have this kind of wrapping around the head once it's removed you could keep it wrapped through the whole thing so we never see them with it which might kind of soften that edge it does soften kind of hide it. it a little bit it softens it but again you i'm following the rule that you've set up here yeah i have this image before me okay and i want to see that as a moving image okay i want to see the head in the basket. Oh, I do. Okay. I do. I, I'm, and maybe that's, maybe that's a, that's part of my issue with it that I'm having a hard time <laughs> overcoming. There's something very powerful about that, but I don't think that you would see that in an American film. I think maybe we just look, we look, we've got a movie to make. Um, I think you just might have to kill your darlings and maybe <laughs> let this, this moment go. Like maybe this well, is what we started with, but we just have to at one point say like, look, the American public is just not ready to see ScarJo walking with a head. Well, and I guess if they're not ready to see ScarJo like that, they're definitely not going to want to see Natalie Portman, who I guess would be the other person that I would think of. Oh, I would totally go with, Natalie Portman, which, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think she should, and I would love to see her with a sword walking away from this. Like, yeah, okay, I did this. Hmm. Okay, let's, let's, let's go back to the village and, you know, do announce, we have, announce our victory here. Do we have, like, a, a funny sidekick? Like, a, like, maybe a Jenny Slate? Ooh, <laughs> you could go with Jenny Slate, that's true. Um, that could, I'm just thinking, like, who would yeah. be, we could also go older, too, um, could be an older woman. <laughs> well, yeah, you could. I guess you could go older. And again, I guess if you wanted to diversify things a little bit, you know, you could go with Helen Mirren. Wait, I think, I think how is that diversifying well, that she's no, British? I'm just, I'm just saying in the idea that I think Helen Mirren would be hilarious. <laughs> oh, okay. As that figure, like carrying the carrying the basket with the head in it. I think she would she would love to do that. Do you think if we go to Helen Mirren and we say... Um, so you're going to play second fiddle to, uh, you know, Natalie Portman. She's cool with that. 
Like, I think she's going to need a guaranteed like amount of screen time. I think she's going to say, though, that, yes, if you're going to want me to carry the head in the basket that she's now the guy that she beheaded. Yeah, I'd be cool with that. I think she would. She remember, she's going to be in the new if Fast. It's a, and if, if it's a good role. Yeah, she's going to be in the new Fast and Furious movie. She has a she has a sense and an, an interest in sort of the the raw, violent kind of way of looking at the world. I think she would be. I think she would. She'd kind of go for that. I think she'd go again for the idea of the image of this painting. Now that you've mentioned Helen Mirren, now I'm, I'm thinking of British, uh, British casting because that's also the thing that Hollywood loves to do is like right. whenever a movie takes place in any country, no matter <laughs> where it is. You the, get a little prestige when you go with the Brits. Yeah. Well, like, um, and again, I, it's like a, t- a title of a movie that I cannot think of, but, uh, not Ten Commandments, but Ten Commandments. What was it? Exodus. Gods uh, and yes. Kings. Was that what it uh, was yes. called? That was wretched as well. Yes. yes. But in that movie, I know, like, we had Ben Kingsley and Christian Bale playing American versions of... Yes. Of, of basically Egyptians or, or yes. the Jewish slaves. And then we had John Turturro and Sigourney Weaver, who were for some reason now British. Right. <laughs> so we had like, yes, we had like this weird flip going on because that's, that's also the thing. Like for some reason, the, you know, villains are always British, right? Right. Right. <laughs> that's, this is again, I'm, I'm like I said, I, I'm now drawn to this painting in a completely different way. So it was before we started this. Any ideas on who you would cast as a Holofernes? Tyrannical. I mean, he does the beard here. It does feel very important. So I don't. But I don't know if we have to go with the beard, beardy guy. I mean, look, you can always put a beard on anyone. Yeah, you could. I think the beard would help. (laughs) I Um, I do just kind of go to beardy people. (laughs) It's like who's got a beard. And I, I don't know if that's really the way to cast things. See, yeah, start with a beard. It's probably not. And I'm. And again, you're you're catching me at a, at a weird time because I'm I'm coming off of a weekend where I just watched The Salesman and Tony Erdman. So I'm in more of a foreign language kind of mode anyway. And and I do not know this actor's name. And I'm sorry that I, I'm not going to be able to reference him properly. But I would think of the the lead from The Salesman. I don't know this. What is the salesman? It's uh, the uh, best foreign language nominee from Ashkar Farhadi, oh, okay. the Iranian director. Um, and this film is basically about um, a couple, and uh, they're actors who are doing a, an Iranian version of Death of a Salesman. Oh, I did hear about this. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, unfortunately, along the way, the wife uh, is brutally attacked in their in their new apartment and the husband sort of goes off on this sort of quest to sort of you know, to figure out who who attacked his wife and to seek justice retribution or whatever what have you um but yeah the husband in that i could i would again i would since there's an opportunity to spotlight a an actor That's whose true. name i don't know off yeah. the top of my head but again we give him a chance to you know expand and reach a different audience. Well, and that's, do something like and that. that's also good. Cause I feel like maybe like an un, un unknown to maybe American audiences would, would be easier to sell as like a really, a really bad guy. Right. too. Like it's, he's not bringing the kind of baggage that we would normally associate with 
anyone else that we would come up with. Again, he was either British or, you know, the the typical American. Although now we don't really have typical American villains, really. Yeah. You know, unless unless you're going for you know cops. Outside of that, they're yeah, and the villains are international. Yeah, I was gonna go like I don't know why I just kept coming up with Eric Bana. <laughs> you know, there's something know there's something about him that I cannot buy as sort of the tough villainous guy. No, he just doesn't work for me in that way. Just, just a little too fun or something, or just, just yeah. Too... There's there's something kind of soft and likable mm-hmm. about him. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Even in yeah, I think even in movies where he's supposed to be kind of rough, there's like a there's always that like sweet side right. to him. The so. only time he's actually worked for me even close, I, I mean, I guess it was the um, gosh, the I think it was the Michael Mann and um, the war film. I'm not going to remember this. Yeah, I'm blanking on. <laughs> I'm not going to certainly be able to pull a title out. Yeah, if if um, you said it, I might go. Oh, yeah. oh, Black Hawk Down. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So you you take him like that, but again, he didn't have many lines, and again, there was so much going on. He was just a figure in that story. Mm. But yeah, anytime you actually give him lines and you know you develop a character around him, there's like I said, there's just something kind of soft and approachable about him. I bet there's some people who would really want to play though, like a villain who've never gotten a chance to, who might be looking for that juicy role, like who are like, Oh, I'm going to Heath Ledger this one. Like, Mm, you know, like maybe, maybe there's some young actor who's just like hungry for that chance to just be like, just kind of chew the scenery, be like kind of over the top. That's true. Could be good. Good opportunity. Problem is these young, these young actors now are again, are, or app work than anything else. And you, you're not going to care about those guys' apps. So maybe, maybe I'm thinking like a, like a Jake Gyllenhaal or somebody who's like now not exactly young anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, but even Gyllenhaal is still pretending that he's a yeah. young fighter. Yeah. A, you know, it, he's, he's not, he's not quite really ready to make that. Has he ever transition. played a villain? I guess I didn't actually see Nightcrawler, but I know it's kind of like a, it's kind of a weird, like creepy role, right? Yeah, he hasn't done a full-on villain. Yeah, he could. I'm just thinking he could. I could buy him with a beard. I'm just again. I'm back to the beard. Yeah, he's probably not a bad choice, though. That's that's true. I I can I can see and appreciate the idea of him in it. That that does work. I would still go with the the actor from The Salesman, though. Okay, (laughs) still your choice. He's still my choice. Is Again. is Jennifer Lawrence too obvious for uh, for Judith? Is it too done? Like, is is it like she's just played that role too many times now? Yeah, I think she has, and uh, we need somebody fresh in there. Yeah, and again, I'm not sure that you. Again, I, I like I said, I'm I'm all for Natalie Portman. Okay, um, but she's not exactly a fresh face either. But again, there's a difference to her. She hasn't been as exposed in that kind of role mm-hmm. in the way that Jennifer. I Lawrence like has. I like the Natalie Portman casting. I think it works. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's also sort of a twist in a way too, because ultimately when she has to whip that sword out and do the deed, Natalie Portman hasn't necessarily done a lot. I mean, she's no. not an action hero per se. So for her to to take that on, there's a there's a challenge for us in terms of how we see her. Yeah, yeah, stepping like, up to do that. 
if if say we're still like if you were talking about Scarlett Johansson, that's like every day for her now. Like right. so it's all she does. It seems like right. so. I think she, you know, this would be more exciting for a Natalie Portman. All right. Well, you get her people on the horn. I'll call Helen Mirren. All right. You call that guy from the I'm salesman. So, I'm so glad you're going to go with the Helen Mirren thing. That's that's good. I feel good about that. I just I don't have any other good ideas for the handmaiden. I don't know if uh, I'm blanking on it. Although, um, hmm, I do keep now thinking of like like funny British actresses. Um, I can't remember her name. We were just talking about her in the office. The lady who was in Spy. Uh, oh yes. Who was the, the sidekick? And yes, spy? yes, yeah. I yes. could see her. She, she could. Sure. She could be a fun like. I just I like that British like comic relief. I think is a good right. <laughs> it could be a good good like sort of a foil to like a very serious Natalie Portman. <laughs> Although, <laughs> and, and I, I I totally get that, but I think in the case of this woman from from Spy, you run the risk of really upsetting the whole tone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally have totally changed this movie into like a completely insane I mean, in different my, movie. In my head now, it's it's much kookier and quirkier than, than yeah. it probably probably than it needs, needs to, to be. be. Yeah, uh, I think that's kind of my mo. So that's probably not. Okay. Yeah, like. Z- zany sidekicks are, you know. All right. Well, here's the deal. Let's see if we can actually make two versions of this movie. Then you get you get the, the kooky zany sidekick, and I get Helen Mirren, and then we'll we'll yeah. just we'll just I, release both. I'm I'm dipping back into the Disney territory with my like whimsical like I don't know like basically we're gonna have like a talking animal very soon if you let me Ooh. keep going. Like I don't even know what I mean. I guess. You probably write a horse or something. I mean, I guess though. Do you need a talking animal, or what happens if the head just starts talking? <laughs> <laughs> what if the head oh, is just no. like, "Hey, wait a minute, come on now." I love that. Like, <laughs> we just take it in a totally different kind of weird, like, look who's talking uh, kind of angle, but with a head. That would be perfect. Speaking of that, I just watched. Um, uh, why I can't think of the name Swiss Army Man yes oh my gosh <laughs> speaking of talking talking corpses yes oh my gosh it's that movie was insane I love him Daniel Radcliffe I totally I, I was not a fan of the Harry Potter movies at all yeah but I love the idea that he he's done sort of almost the Daniel Day-Lewis kind of route it's like he's he made all that money on those films and he's just like, you know what? I don't have to do anything like yeah. that ever again if I don't want to. So yeah, he's, if I'm going to keep acting, let's just do some interesting stuff. Yeah, just completely dedicated to doing like whatever weird project he yeah. wants. Does not care. Beautiful. Yeah. So I wish more people did that. Yeah, it's really great. And he's really he's really wonderful in that movie, too. <laughs> he's really funny and just like, yeah. it's, it's actually, I can sort of see you would think like, wait, you're going to play a corpse the whole time? And But when you watch it, you kind of start to realize like, Oh, there's like a real challenge to this. And there's a lot of different levels to it. Like the different ways he portrays, like how kind of dead he is at any given moment, like how much, how much control of his I, face he has. I at love, any given moment. I love how we're looking at the motivation for playing a dead guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, just like the idea of, of performing where you, the trying to give the sense that you have like no control over your body in any way other than like, 
like very limited like lip movement. I feel like most of the time he's not moving his eyes right. at all. Right. Like he's almost never moving his eyes until pretty late in the movie. And and it's just so funny. It's so funny. And, it is. And the, almost the way that like early on to even talking is like a struggle, like mm-hmm. in that, like you can kind of see how hard it is and the, <laughs> ah, it's so funny. Um, there is, there's real genius in the life he's living right now. Mm-hmm. That Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> well, that sounds like a great note to end on talking about <laughs> Judith and Oliphernes. Let's talk about Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> Wow, where this conversation has gone. I know. All right. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Dressed to Kill, Japanese Arms and Armor, Transcending Reality, The Woodcuts of Kosaka Gajin. The Poetry of Place, William Clift, Linda Connor, and Michael Kenna. The Book of Only Enoch and the Jackleg Testament, Part 1, Jack and Eve. A program you might be interested in is Art After Dark, Dressed to Kill, on Friday, February 24th from 5 to 9 p.m. Enjoy live music by DJ Odie, Saki Drinks, Origami Making, Sushi Courtesy of Fusion, Seven Samurai Movie Screening, Kendo Performances, and free admission to the exhibition. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even Snapchat. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalaon. If you haven't already done so, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes because it really helps others discover our show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. (laughs) ¶¶